simple thing you can do is actually allow God's spirit to work in your life and to really search our hearts. You know, the psalmist prayed, search us, O Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in us. Wow, that's a pretty dramatic prayer, don't you think? And the reason why we have to do that kind of work is because if we don't address issues when they're small, they grow to be bigger issues in our lives and become far more challenging. And yet, it's not beyond God's redemptive abilities to change our lives. So I'm going to talk about very sensitive subject here today. And, uh, you know, we could easily tune out, turn off. We could maybe feel guilt. Or we could feel shame. I don't want you to, you know what? That's not what the goal is here at all. The goal here is to look at something that we're struggling with as a culture and then to address it in a healthy way. I might like that. And that we could actually leave here today dropping our baggage at the feet of Jesus and being free, maybe from some very strong addictions in our lives. What do you think of that idea? And that's what, that's what it's all about. Jesus is here not to condemn us. He's here to save us. He's a savior. We need to keep that in mind. And with that thought in mind, let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning. We recognize we're gonna do some soul work and we know we need your spirit to work within our hearts and lives. I pray right now that you will remove all of the justifications that we can come up with for why we do what we do. And Lord, be open our hearts to you so that you can do an amazing work of addressing things in our soul that need to leave. And so that we can experience joy and peace and freedom, maybe such as we've not had in years. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Erwin Lutzer, I actually had the privilege of having him as a preaching teacher. Uh, he pastors Moody Memorial Church. And he shares the story of preaching somewhere in the Midwest. And a woman came to him at the end of the service with a little girl and she had a cast on her arm, she had scars on her face, and she had, was evident that she had been hospitalized, and there were burns, she said, over two-thirds of her body. She said, when my husband walked into the hospital room, he took one look at me and said, you're not the woman I married, and left. And I don't mean just left the room, he just walked out of their lives. And you talk about the difficulty of experiencing human love. How many know human love is a conditional love? And a lot of times people go, I love you for what you're giving me, not I love you no matter what. And so that's kind of God's love. How many know God's love is a love that is unconditional and it's not deserved? And aren't you glad that God loves you and I, even when we're messing up, God doesn't just say, oh, forget it, I'll just pick another person. No, he sticks with us and he keeps loving us and that's what brings about the transformation and change that's so needed in all of our lives. So human love says, as long as you stimulate me, as long as I can be proud of you, as long as you're beautiful, I can love you, but if you change, so does my love. That's a tragic situation. I remember a number of years ago, had a couple come to my office. This is when I was a lot younger, and I hadn't written that wonderful little pamphlet, Before You Say I Do, that eliminated these awkward situations. This couple had come to the church on a Sunday. They'd made an appointment. I didn't know them. They wanted me to do their wedding. You know me, I'm just going to ask questions and find out where they're coming from. Found out he had been a Christian. He had divorced his wife when I asked him why. He said to me, because she had ended up in Pinocchio and she's got a lot of emotional issues. And I said, oh, now this is, you know, I'm a little younger then. I, so I turned to the younger woman sitting next to him and I said, so, oh, I get it. 
This means that if you ever do something that's not up to what he wants, he's out of here. Uh, he didn't appreciate that comment, but you know, <laughs> you, could, you could see that I was trying to help her realize that he had a conditional kind of thinking in his love bank, and so I was a little concerned for her that, you know, yeah, it's good today, but if she ever changed, he's out of here. And because if you do it once, that's probably what you're going to do again. And uh, they never showed up in the church again. You know, if I didn't do that kind of stuff, we'd probably have a larger church. But, you know, I, I just felt like, you know what, this is not healthy. This is not a good thing. And if you care about people, you're going to try to point some things out. You know, one of the things that we need to understand, and, and what I'm going to preface my remarks is, even though we can have had this negative experience in our life, maybe we've gone through a divorce, maybe it's not something we wanted, this is not the unforgivable sin. We've got to just start right there. But Jesus is going to have some words to a group of religious people in his day who thought they were keeping the law, but Jesus is going to show them, yeah, they had an understanding of the letter of the law, but they never fully grasped what the law was all about. We're going to see about that, what's it all about here in a moment. Judith, Wall, Judith Wallerstein wrote a number of books, and she had a team of psychologists that worked for about 35, 40 years researching from the 1960s and 70s the effects that divorce has on children. And I think we need to hear this because it's really powerful because back in that time, the prevailing mood of the culture was simply this, that if you're unhappy and your spouse is unhappy and you're not getting along and you're fighting, it's probably better you go your own way and it's probably better for the children because then they won't be living in an unhappy home, right? That was the prevailing thought. Now, we know that that's probably not the best thinking because they've done a lot of research on the results of that. And this is what Judith Waldestein found out. She said, children from divorced and remarried families actually become more aggressive towards their parents and their teachers. They experience more depression, have more learning difficulties, and suffer more problems with peers than children from intact families. Isn't that kind of interesting? So basically, even though the parents of the divorce may have been happier as a result of the divorce, the children, unfortunately, were suffering as a result. And that's something we need to understand. Then she goes on to say that these children often feel sad, lonely, angry during childhood. As a matter of fact, they feel out of control. Their parents set their agendas. Many times they're tossed back and forth between parents. And it's difficult for them because they're trying to build peer networks. And then all of a sudden, their vacation time, they're switched over to the other parent or they're sharing their load. Now, I'm not... I'm, I'm just pointing out what happens. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just telling you this is the reality, and this is what she was discovering. She went on to say this. When they reached adulthood, many of them had acute anxiety, and they had the idea that could I ever find a faithful woman to love me, or would I ever find a man I could trust? In other words, they were deeply concerned about the institution of marriage because they had seen it undermined in their childhood. They went on to say not one of the men or women from divorced families whose lives reported in this book wanted their children to repeat their childhood experiences. They envied friends who grew up in what they call an intact family. Now, that's very strong. This is, this is a psychological research done 
over many, many years. And so what it reveals to us is that the children are the ones who are suffering many times. I relate to this. I grew up in a family. My parents divorced. Fortunately for me, I was 17. But I had three other siblings. They were younger. And I saw the devastating impact it had upon their lives. And so I can honestly assent to what some of the things that she was talking about. Now, having said that, I recognize that not everybody wants to have a divorce in their life. I get that. I'm a pastor. I've had people in my office crying because, you know, their wife or husband left them and they did not want the relationship to end. I understand. It takes two to make a marriage work. But I'm, I'm framing this whole message in this context because we're living in a society today where we see so much brokenness. And I think part of the reality is, is we haven't taken Jesus' words to account. We're not really understanding the Ten Commandments correctly. We're, we're almost like the Pharisees. We have an idea of what it's about, but we don't get the essence of it. And hopefully today we're going to get a deeper understanding. Now there's two things that we have to keep in mind that Jesus was talking about. Number one, we, we, a few weeks ago I talked about this. Jesus said, I'm not coming to destroy the law. He said, I'm not negating it. But rather, I've come to fulfill the law, and I want to, And really what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is correcting the misinterpretations that literally were nullifying its value, its purpose. The law actually, you know what the purpose of the law is? The purpose of the law is to show you and I that we're actually sinners. That's really its purpose. And a lot of us don't like that. We don't want to be corrected. Isn't that true? You know, a lot of us, because we have maybe insecurities or inferiorities, we don't like correction in our life. But I've discovered, I, you know, you can get defensive about it, but as I've gotten older, I've appreciated good correction. I think there's criticism that's unhealthy, and then I think there's good correction that helps you to become a better person. And when you hear good correction or good, uh, I will call positive, uh, I'll use the word correction, then you respond to that and you become better. I've just been finishing a thesis. I think I had to make well over 150 corrections. I, for a while, I thought I was failing. But now that I've been working on it for so long, over a year now, I feel like, okay, I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff I would have never learned with, apart from being corrected. You know, I'm paying for these corrections. You know, isn't that great? Some of you go, really, Pastor? You must be really a masochistic type of person that likes that kind of stuff. But that's not the reality. The reality is I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to develop. And I want to understand. The second thing that, the, that Jesus is dealing with here is a misunderstanding of the intent of the law. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day had so minimized the impact of the law that they felt they were keeping it and thus producing a sense of self-righteousness. Isn't that interesting? So if you think you're a good person, you never change. How many know that's one of the problems in our culture today? We're telling everybody they're okay. But everybody thinks they're okay, but the reality is deep down inside, we know we're broken. Even though people might tell you you're okay, you're going, yeah, but there's still some problems down here. And we recognize that. And what Jesus is basically saying is none of us keep the law. That's what we need to understand. It's really difficult to be good. You know, it's easy to do the wrong thing. It's easy to fail. And yet, one of the things we gain from the law is knowing right from wrong and then a recognition that, yeah, even though I messed up, 
God is not rejecting me. He's not condemning me. He sent a Savior into the world, not to condemn the world, but to deliver us from our sin. How many think that's an amazing thing? That even though I might be struggling today with an issue, even as a believer, God has the ability to deliver me. I love that. And that's the hope that you and I have as people that are interested in receiving God's power in our lives. Jesus challenged these guys, these Pharisees. You know, he just said to the rest of the people listening, your righteousness has to surpass their righteousness. Wow, that's a pretty powerful statement. These guys looked like they were doing everything right. And outwardly, they were. But inwardly, they were a mess. Jesus actually goes after them in Matthew 23 and says, you guys are like, you know, whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, on the outside you look good, but you're dead man's bones on the inside. You're really messed up in there. And so Jesus is trying to get them to realize you need help. But how many know when you're self-righteous, you don't see your problems? Isn't that true? And how many can really relate to the fact that, how many can honestly say this, that you don't really appreciate people who are really self-righteous, who think they've got it all together, and you're looking at their life and going, buddy, you're telling me what to do? You know? (laughs) Really, sister? You better take a look at yourself. You got some issues before you're telling everybody else how to straighten up. Isn't that true? And so self-righteousness is a big turn off. Isn't that true? And that's why a lot of non-believers, they look at Christians and go, you you guys are so self-righteous. That's a turn off. Well, we better make sure that what we are on the outside is what we are on the inside. There needs to be congruency and authenticity in our lives. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones brings out this idea. He says, so often as what we quote Christians, born-again Christians or evangelicals, you know, we're so caught up with believing the right thing. But sometimes we're not always living the right thing. And it creates problems for people. As a matter of fact, Jesus, you know, is going to talk about this whole idea of the fact that we can be keeping the letter of the law but violating the spirit of it. You know, you can actually have sin in your heart, Lloyd-Jones writes, without anybody knowing it. In other words, you may look perfectly respectable and nobody would guess what's going on in your imagination. You see? You could be really doing crazy things upstairs, but outwardly it looks like, oh yeah, everything's okay with this person. But that's not what's going on. So, as a matter of fact, he goes on to say, what God actually sees, folks, is not just the outside. He's seeing the inside. He's seeing what's going on inside our hearts. When I talk about our heart, I'm talking about the idea of the essence of who you are, your mind, your emotions, your will, all of those things come into fact when I'm talking about the heart. So Harold Bressel says this, refusing to deal with our own potential uh, for evil can make even our goodness dangerous. In other words, we can think that we're good when in reality we got issues we're not addressing. And that's why the psalmist prays that amazing prayer. Search me, O God. See if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, I may not notice that there's some things inside of me that need to change. And so that's why I've been praying this morning that God will just open our hearts up and do some soul work and say, hey, if there's something that God wants to change in our lives, we want to be open to that and let God create within us a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. That was the prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51. So let's take a look at the text this morning found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. He's just quoting the Ten Commandments. That's the sixth or seventh commandment. Do not commit adultery. 
Well, the Pharisees are going, I'm not committing adultery. But then he goes on to say it this way in the next verse. But I tell you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is saying, adultery is not just a physical action. Adultery begins in our minds. Wow. As a matter of fact, we all know that we're going to have thoughts that aren't necessarily nice. And I, I would venture to say that everyone in this room has probably had a thought or two that wasn't what you would call godly. Okay? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a sin, but we have to do something with that thought. And the Bible says that we need to take it captive and make it obedient to Christ. What does that mean, Pastor? It means that I need to know enough of the Bible to say, that's not a good thought, that's an un ugly or ungodly thought, and I need to replace that thought with something positive. That's what I need to be doing with this thought. But sometimes, you know, we can get a thought and we begin to enjoy the thought. And that's when it becomes a sin to us. And we can begin to camp and have another whole life. We can have an interior life going on that's totally different than the outer life. Like on the outside, we're portraying a certain per persona, but on the inside, we got a whole different world going on in our thoughts. That's what the problem is. And that's what Jesus now is gonna deal with. He says here, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. This sounds pretty radical, right? I mean, talk about surgery. I mean, if you see somebody and you're lusting after, he says, you should just take your eyes out. Well, he's not talking about this literally. This is, this is a metaphorical expression, and we'll see what he means by that. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. These are strong words. These are Jesus' words. If anyone said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce, but I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Wow, these are hard-hitting words, and I think we sometimes breeze through them and ignore what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. Now, I wanna just stop here and re reiterate this to us. Number one, how many know this is not the biggest sin in the Bible? Okay, number one. Number two, what we need to know, when you read the Old and New Testament, how many recognize that God's people are kind of messy? Have you read it? We're all over the map, and most of the time we're doing the wrong things. How many notice that? And aren't you glad that God comes with redemption if we are willing to repent and change our mind and come in agreement with God and say, you know what? Yeah, I made a bad decision back there and it's sinful, it's caused me grief, it's caused other people hurt, I need to acknowledge it and stop pretending I did the right thing and acknowledge it was the wrong thing to do and ask God to forgive me. And that's where God is trying to bring us all to that point. Now, let me move on here to talk about three principles regarding the nature of uh, sinful desire. I'm gonna probably get through one. So just relax, okay? That's how much I got through in the last ser service. First of all is the underlying cause of adultery. What causes the condition of heart that leads to marital breakups? Well, Jesus says unholy desires. And what do I mean by an unholy desire? It's a desire that's not according to God's will and purpose. He's not talking about, you know, it's possible to be attracted to a lot of people. How many know that's probably true? But you know what? That doesn't mean it's God's will for us. You know, we need to stick to the one person that we have committed ourselves and covenanted in relationship called marriage. You know, so it's important that 
we actually understand how significant this covenant is. Don't take it lightly, folks. You know what? God doesn't take it lightly. It's a big deal to God because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he's trying to teach us to be covenant-keeping people. How many get that? That's what God's working on. Now, do we always do that perfectly? Unfortunately, no, we don't. You know? That happens. We recognize that. You know, there's those that have experienced this. Their spouse walks out on them. I've already said that. What are they supposed to do? You know, they didn't want it to happen, but it happened. And then there are, there are people who decided, you know what, I'm going to run off with someone else. And, uh, and Jesus is not going to tell us that we can't forgive people. He's just going to say, you see, because in their minds, Pharisees, oh, no, that's grounds for a divorce. We'll just do this. And Jesus goes, no, no, just wait a minute. I, I want you to understand the intent of the law. And he's going to get into that. Now, what Jesus is... Uh, yeah, we can talk about this too. Because a lot of times, you know, marriages go sideways for a lot of reasons. And one of the things that Paul brings out, and I'm going to add it here, he talks about separation. Because separation sometimes has to occur because of, you know, maybe there's domestic violence going on. And I've, and I've said to people, listen, when that happens, I'm not saying get a divorce, but you're going, you better get separated so that you can actually address that issue. Because if you leave domestic violence unaddressed, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. It's going to escalate. You have to address that stuff. It's very significant. So, you know, the book of Malachi talks about that. Well, let me move on here. Uh, Jesus is not necessarily commanding, but he's giving grounds that could bring a marriage to an end. Notice it says here in this passage, you've heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus is showing us that the nature of sin originates from within us. That's what he's telling us. It comes from the heart. You know, evil has already been activated. We're just acting out what we've already thought in our minds. And you know, a lot of people are doing, this is what happens to people. We start getting into the mental gymnastics. I want something, therefore I begin to justify what I want until finally I have enough justification that I do it. You see what we do? And we're looking for people to confirm our decisions. And sometimes they come to me as a pastor, and I hate it because, you know, you know, trying to justify their behavior. Stop, don't use me for that. I don't like that. I'll be honest. Because I'm one of these people, I'm going, no, no, listen to what it says here, and we want to do what it says because that's what's best for all of us. Our society, that's best for you, it's best for everybody, you know. You know, the ancient Hebrew people actually... Uh, no, I gotta make this point too. You know, there's a lot of people go, well, I've already decided in my mind, therefore I'm gonna do it in my action. Well, no, it's a big difference. That's like saying I was angry at somebody, now I'm gonna go kill them. You know, you follow what I'm saying? I preached on that last week. You know, the danger of anger can lead to murder. But just because you're angry, Jesus says you've already committed murder in your heart, doesn't mean you've committed murder in the flesh. It's the same thing with adultery. It starts in our minds and it eventually becomes a physical activity. He's saying, address the problem within the heart. That's the point that Jesus is driving at. And as a matter of fact, the ancient Hebrew people understood that the perfect man was someone who had purity of thought. That's very interesting. You remember the story of Job? Remember what God said about Job? He was blameless. Listen to what Job says in Job chapter 31 and verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look at a young woman? 
Another translation says, not to, I made a covenant in my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. In other words, he said, I refuse to go down that track in my thinking. I didn't go there, you know. We said, well, yeah, but sometimes you see an attractive person. Yeah, it's okay, they're attractive, but don't focus on that. Bring your mind back. I've made an agreement. I'm not going to focus on that. This is where my mind is going to go. I recognize this is the wrong approach. You know what the problem with the Pharisees were? They thought they were keeping the law. And this is what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones brings on. I think this is such an important point. This is what I'm getting at, and you're going to see how powerful this really is. He said the real trouble with the Pharisees and the scribes is that they had never even read the Ten Commandments properly. What do you mean? If they had truly considered and studied them, they would have seen that you cannot take them, each one in isolation. In other words, this is what we tend to do. Okay, put something ahead of God. No, check, I'm okay there. You know, uh, honor my father and my mother. Yeah, I didn't give them any hassles. Check, you know. Uh, did I kill anybody? Do not kill. No, I didn't kill anybody. Check. I'm keeping it. Oh, didn't commit adultery. Check. They go down the boxes. They go, great. I've kept the Ten Commandments. Jesus going, no, no, no. That's not what I'm getting at. For example, the Tenth Commandment says that we must never covet. It says don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's goods. Don't covet your neighbor's house. The word covet literally means long after, desire, aspire after. You know, and that obviously should be taken in conjunction with this command not to commit adultery. In other words, you know what? If you have a desire for somebody else's spouse, you're committing adultery. See, because you have the wrong desire. That's the problem. That's what the Apostle Paul discovered. As a matter of fact, he says that in Romans 7 when he confesses that he himself had been guilty of that very error. Could you imagine Paul's a Pharisee? He always thought he, he says, I kept the law blamelessly, and then he met Jesus, and then he realized, you know what? I was coveting all along. I was breaking all of the commands because I had the wrong heart. In other words, I wasn't satisfied with what God had brought into my life. You see, when you and I live a life, it's really powerful. When you and I live a life of dissatisfaction, what we're basically saying as children of God, we're not happy with our lot in life. We're not happy with God. We're dissatisfied. We're trying to meet our satisfaction needs some other way. Now think about that for a minute. What does it say? The Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I what? I shall not want. Or another translation says, I have no lack. Now, I told you the story. I'm sitting on a beach in Vancouver. That's, I, I like Vancouver. I was born there, okay? I'm sitting on this beautiful beach in Vancouver whining to God. <clears throat> Some of you might call it prayer, but I was calling. See, God, God can really pull you up short, you know? I was whining about this and that to God. I'm at the beach. I'm in, you know, here's the irony. It's a beautiful sunny day. I'm looking out, you know, it's just gorgeous out there. And I'm carrying on. And God goes, what are you whining about? This is how I get the interpretation back, right, in my mind. What are you whining about? Because I'm reading Psalm 16, and it dawns on me, this verse is that God says, you know what? You have a delightful inheritance. The boundary lines have fallen you in pleasant places. So what God was saying to me is, listen, buddy, you can't believe how good you've got it. Let me start pointing all the good things out to you. I mean, man alive, you're born in a great country. How many appreciate that we were born in Canada with all of these amazing freedoms and blessings, the opportunity to have the education we have? I had so much going. I mean, 
Think about it. I live in an amazing city. I pastor a great church. I've got so much going on. I've had the privilege of studying under some amazing biblical scholars. You know, most of the pastors, they don't even have this opportunity. I'm just, you know, started thinking about all the amazing things God had done in my life. And God's going, I got an amazing wife, incredible family. I'm so blessed. And God goes, why are you whining? You go, you're right. I am whining and I shouldn't be. I should be thankful. I should be filled with gratitude. And by the way, the moment you are dissatisfied, you open yourself up to temptation. Because now you're going to look and try to meet that need. And I've come to the deep conclusion from that little experience, number one, God meets all of my needs. Hey, if I, I've got everything I need to, to make life work for me. God says, I've given you everything in this life to make you godly. I've given you everything in this, for this life. I've blessed you. And we don't focus on that. We're walking around going, well, I'm just not satisfied. Well, what's going on there? I haven't learned the secret. See, Paul says to the Philippians, I've learned the secret that in any and every circumstances, I've learned to be content. I've learned what it's like to have a lot, and I've learned what it's like to have nothing, and yet I'm content in every situation. Paul, what's your secret? How did you learn contentment? It says in the next verse, couple, the next verse, actually, verse 13 of Philippians 4, 11 and 12, then you go to 13. I can do all things through Christ, which gives me strength. I'm going, hey, listen, if you got Christ, you have everything you need to make it in this life. And I thought to myself, if I really need something, all I need to do is ask my Father in heaven. Why wouldn't he give it to me? And if he doesn't give it to me, why do I need it? Because he probably knows me. I probably would destroy myself if I got that. <clears throat> you ever thought of that? <clears throat> I think I need this, God. God goes, if I gave you that, it would be like giving a seven-year-old, you know, a Harley Davidson. Good luck. You know. That's how do you think that's going to work, you know? Sometimes it's a timing issue. You know, we got to understand all of that. It goes on to say, it was when he realized what the law said, thou shalt not covet, that he began to understand the meaning of lust or desire. Before that, he had been thinking of the law in terms of action only, but the law of God does not stop at mere action. It says, thou shalt not covet. Wow. So, it's not just doing the wrong thing. It's wanting to do the wrong thing that's the problem. You follow what I'm getting at? Sometimes in our lives, it's, you know, I'm not doing anything bad, but no, but having the desire to want to do something that's bad, that's bad too. That's what coveting is all about. How many are following this? So sometimes I think, well, I'm just doing everything perfectly, and God goes, yeah, but... If you, had your, if you really got down to it, you'd really rather go do that. Uh, yeah, you got me. That's true. You see, and God wants us to deal with these emotions that are inside of us, these desires that are inside of us. Actually, we need to make a decision how we're going to operate in this realm in our lives. It was funny. I'm listening to some lectures here this week on, you'll love this, reason and faith in the Middle Ages. Doesn't that sound exciting? Wouldn't you order those lectures? <clears throat> Some of you look at me like, Pastor, you got to be kidding. No. And I'm listening to this guy, Anson. And Anson, he's talking about, he, he's raising a question. He's a teacher. He's raising the question. Why is it that the good angels retain their estate and the bad angels rebelled against God? You know, 
Very interesting conversation. Why did they do this? And so this lecture brings out the idea simply that there's, there's a, because they're angels, just like human beings, they have a choice. And they can choose justice or do the right thing, or they can choose advantage, what they think would be an advantage to them, which they feel like somehow there's a lack in their life, that they could say, this is what's going to make me happy. And so if they go after what they think is going to make them happy, what they end up doing is the wrong thing. And isn't that what we kind of do as human beings? A lot of times we go, I know what the right thing to do is, but I really want to do the wrong thing, and I think that the wrong thing is going to make me happy, but wrong answer, because when I do the wrong thing, it doesn't make me happy. So I not only do the wrong thing, I'm now miserable. You see the problem? But when I do the right thing, not only do I do the right thing, I actually eventually realize it actually brought real happiness. And he said, that's why the good angels, they chose justice over advantage, or in his words, happiness, and therefore they got both justice and happiness while the fallen angels got neither. And isn't that true of human beings? We have the same problem. We think we're going after what we think will make us happy, but the reality is we're deceiving ourselves, and when we choose the wrong thing, it makes us miserable eventually, because there's only pleasure in sin for a season. And then there are the consequences that we have to live with for the rest of our lives. Wow. You know, lust is literally letting thoughts soak in that are impure, getting gratification without giving anything. It's all selfish. It's about what I'm getting. You know, it focuses on the self. Someone has described lust as the craving for salt of a man who's dying of thirst. Let that soak in for a minute. I think we're aware today we're living in a promiscuous culture. How many kind of get that? How many know that today's advertising is all based on, most of it's based on sexuality. It's just really crazy, you know? What does that got to do with that product? You know, and you're thinking in your mind, but that's what's going on. And so we're so bombarded with sexual imagery today that our minds are being captured. And unfortunately, you know, there's such access to this stuff today like never before. Do you realize in 1973, according to U.S. News and World Report, that the pornography industry, the Americans spent $10 million on pornography. But by 1999, they spent $10 billion. I'm going to tell you something right now. It's so bad. These are 20-year-old stats. It's actually gotten worse because of the ability of the Internet to bring images into people's lives. You know, this is, this is stats taken from Christian college, Christian university. 68% of the male students said they had intentionally looked for pornography, pornography on the Internet. Now, let me just stop here for a minute because, you know, I think a lot of you think, well, you know, you guys, you got a real problem. But I'm going to just stop and say this. Women are doing this too. And so when I'm, I'm, I'm going to be gender inclusive here. This problem of desire is not just to men. Listen, ladies, if you ever thought in your mind, I don't like the current model I'm married to, I wish I was married to somebody else, that's the same thing. You've just committed the thing I'm talking about. You see, you're committing the same sin. You follow what I'm getting at. He says here, 10% of those surveys admitted to frequent use of pornography and 5% acknowledge having a problem with pornography. But you know what the real problem is today? People who think they can watch pornography and think it's no problem. That's even a deeper problem. Are you catching on? 
Because it's affecting how you're thinking. And what it does is it affects your ability to relate to human beings. See, we have such a weird sense of what a relationship is all about. That's not what a relationship is all about. And I'm going to tell you this. Actually, having a relationship with somebody is actual work. Because you and I are married to a fellow sinner. Isn't that true? And no matter how awesome they are, no matter how awesome you are, you and I mess up. And so do they. And so you and I have to learn to live in grace and begin to value what that person brings into the equation. And when you start to really appreciate what your spouse is bringing to the equation and stop focusing on what they're not bringing, you will be a lot happier. Thank you, Donovan. And that's why he's been married over 50 years. You see, he understands it. Yeah. That's the way it works. Learning to value. But let me close. I told you I only get to a little bit of point two because I don't want to just leave you with the problem. And the problem, I want to go to the solution. And it's a radical solution, but it's a great solution. Notice how Jesus describes the solution. He says, if your right eye sins against you, notice you're looking, it's the problem of looking. When the woman looked to see that the fruit was good to the, to, to the appeal to the eyes and was great to the t- touch and good to eat, that's what sin is all about, right? It starts with a look. You know, Jesus is saying, hey, take your eyeball out. Well, he's not talking literally, though I did read a story once where a guy cut off his arm because he was following this text of Scripture. That's, a, that's wrong understanding. He's not speaking literally. He's speaking figuratively and metaphorically. What Jesus is saying is that we have to address sin, not only in its infancy, but we have to address sin in a radical manner. To leave it unaddressed in our lives will eventually lead to spiritual death and ultimately lead to eternal destruction. So the first step, according to F.B. Myers, Baptist preacher, he said, in the religious life is to detect right and wrong, not in the act, but in the thought and intention. Now, how do you determine what's right or wrong? According to whom? You see, our culture says today, we're deciding what's right and wrong. And that, by the way, is the first temptation in the garden. When we make the decision, this is right for me or wrong for me, we're playing God. Do we realize that? And so when we say, I'm letting Jesus be Lord of my life, what I'm saying is, I'm letting you, Father, determine what's right and wrong for me. And how do I discover that? Well, I have to discover it through exercising my senses. That, that It says here, but solid food. He's talking about the Bible, the Word of God. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish good and evil. We need to begin to allow the word of God to come into our lives so that we have the ability to distinguish what is good and what is evil, what is healthy, what is unhealthy, what is wise and what is foolish. And if we don't do that, we become God in our own minds and we decide what is good and what is wrong and what is wise and what is foolish. And Paul talks about that, thinking themselves to be wise, what? They became fools. You see, because now you are trying to play God. So let me just close the whole service here really quickly now and say this. How do we overcome sin in our lives? Well, it's the very first thing we did when we became a Christian. We need to give our hearts to God. Do you know what I've discovered? It's all about the heart. If we give our hearts to God, then God can create in us a clean heart. Isn't that beautiful? 
How many think, you know, if I have a problem, isn't that great? I can come to my father in heaven and say, I've got a real problem here. I'm really struggling with issues in my soul. And God says, you know, I've got an ability and power not only to forgive you, I have the power to cleanse you and deliver you from this very thing. And as I do that, I also give you the ability to now do the right thing. Isn't that great? God's spirit is there for us so that we can choose to say, you know, I'm not gonna entertain these impure ideas and entertain these wrong thoughts. I'm gonna take them captive and I'm gonna bring them into obedience to Christ. I do that by saying, you know what? I'm gonna trust what God has for my life rather than what I think is best. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just do what he's asking me to do rather than just do my own thing. And in the end, I can tell you, in the end, you will be happy you did the right thing. Like I keep telling you guys, I've never had somebody come into my office and go, Pastor, I really regret really serving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've not I've had, had that conversation. I've had a lot of people come into my office and say, Pastor, I have deep regrets in my life. I made wrong choices. I sinned against God's word and I've seen the consequences it's brought into my life and into my family's life. I've heard those conversations a lot. But I've never heard one person come into me and go, you know, it was the worst mistake in my life. You know, I just kept doing the thing that God called me to do. I've never heard that conversation because I don't think it exists. Because I think in the long run, when you look back and you go, thank God I chose the right path. And some of you in this room, you and I have walked beside other people in our journey. I'm gonna close with this thought. And you know what the sad thing is? We've seen them deviate. It's the truth. We've seen them make the wrong choice and they just deviated. And it's so painful because you know some of these people that deviated, I love them. And when they make the wrong choice, choice, it breaks my heart because I know what's going to happen. Pain and consequences come in their way and it just takes time for it to happen. Let's stand. It's a little sobering subject. It's a little bit of soul work, but I'm just going to have you be really honest before God. I'm just going to have you bow your heads. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm a fellow sinner. You saw that last week I had people come forward. I'm not going to do that today. But right now, before Almighty God, you say, you know, Pastor, I can honestly say, it may not even be that I have lustful thoughts. It may just be I'm discontented. Because that's a doorway. You know, it's, I'm violating. What I'm trying to show you is if I am not satisfied with what God has brought into my life right now, I've had a measure of dissatisfaction then I'm going to start pursuing things other than what God has for me. And what I'm trying to challenge us to do is I'm saying, look, just go for God. Because if you're lonely, he can, he can meet that loneliness need. If you're broken, he can meet that need in your life. If you're struggling with impure thoughts, God can deliver you. He can get rid of addictions and habits. He can break chains. If we'll just come to him and say, here, Lord, here's my heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. God will do it. He will set you free. But you have to say, Lord, here am I. I give you my heart. And then he tells us afterwards, guard it. We have a responsibility. I give you my heart, God. God says, good. I'm glad you did that. Now guard it. Out of it flow the issues of life. How many here say, you know, Pastor, 
We've done soul work today, and I'm prepared. I'm just going to surrender my heart. I, I want to be set free, you know, from maybe what I consider sinful thoughts that are controlling my thinking. I'm one thing on the outside, but I'm something different on the inside. I want to be free. I want to be united. I want my heart to be united to fear your name. If that's you, just raise your hands. Just raise your hands before Almighty God. Say, Lord, do a mighty work inside of me. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Maybe you're here today, you're just saying, I'm just dissatisfied. That's me. That, that, that resonated with me. Or, you know what? I'm, I'm always comparing myself to other people, or I'm comparing what I think my life should be like. And I'm not satisfied with where it is today. That's me. Raise your hand. That's you. Don't stay there. Give God that element in your life to say, Lord, here's my heart. I give it to you. I want to be free. I want you to just set me free. Because you know when we don't have the right heart attitude, we make bad choices. That's what I'm getting after. When you are not happy in Jesus, you're going to make bad choices. How do you get there? You give him your heart. You give him your heart. Any movement away from God is going to be a movement away from happiness. Any movement away from God is away from truth. It's away from righteousness. It's the way it works. You may not think that way, but it's the way it works. Let's just pray right now. God, we just thank you this morning. You're challenging us in our thought life. You're telling us, Lord, not to covet, to be satisfied, not to be longing all the time for what the world and society has to offer. Lord, help it. None of these things draw us away from you. In you, Father, there's joy, there's hope, there's life, there's meaning, there's significance, all the things that we as human beings long for. You have it to give to us. I pray today, Father, we'll find such satisfaction in our relationship with you that we will start thinking differently about how we see ourselves and how we see other people, oh God. Help us not to be a Pharisee that we think outwardly I'm doing the right thing, but inwardly maybe I'm just broken. Lord, help us to be congruent in, our, in our, who we are as a person, that we're unified in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and then in our actions, Lord. Help us not just to conform outwardly, but, Lord, to be transformed inwardly. Change us, oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.